Well, I want to start today by talking to you about dishes. All right, you might think, well, what are, what are we talking about? I, I know we're talking about the book of Ecclesiastes. What do dishes have to do with Ecclesiastes? But, but I'm going to suggest to you that at least these first 11 verses are all about dishes. Um, you know, here's the mystery about dishes. Some of you guys this will really resonate with. Think about the dishes in your home. You're doing these dishes every day. You eat and they get dirty again. And you eat and they get dirty again. And, you know, you go through this process washing these dishes. You, I, I don't know if you're like me, but when I wash dishes, I have this, this process. I don't know what your process is. When I got married, my wife and I had two different processes and we'd, we'd argue with each other about what was the better way to wash dishes. And, and we decided that the, the, for the sake of our marriage, whoever does the dishes gets to do them their way. Right? But for me, my process is I, I first kind of, I get all the dirty dishes, I, put them all, I take them all out of the sink and put them all to the side, I get them in order, ready to go, and then I fill up the thing with water, I get the soap ready, I get my sponge ready, right? And then one by one, I start, I start washing the dishes, I, I scrub them, get them all out, you know, rinse them a couple times, and then I put them over here in the dish rack, and then I get the next one, and I do the same thing. And it takes me some time. I, I keep on doing this. And then after I'm done, I put them in the drying rack. I know some of you might actually, you know, wipe them off, dry them off, put them back in. Uh, but I put them in the drying rack. And then, um, you know, I, I put the sponge back to where it's supposed to go. And then I wipe off the counter, and I wipe, off, wipe down the sink so it's all ready. And then I leave the room for a minute. And I come back. A minute later, and there's more dirty dishes in the sink, and I, and I don't know where they come from. I don't know, and, and, I, and it seems like every time I come into the kitchen, there's more of these to do, and it never ends, and, and the more I do them, I, I'm going to do them again, and I'm going to do them again after the next meal, and I'm going to do them again tomorrow. And I'm going to do them again every single day of my meaningless life. And I'm going to spend my meaningless life doing dishes. And it's an exaggeration. Your life isn't meaningless. But, but your life may feel meaningless at times. Because you're spending your entire life washing dishes. I, I read a study in... Um, it's called a study called Changing Rhythms of American Family Life. The average American woman spends 66 minutes a week doing dishes, and the average American man spends 42 minutes a week during dishes, doing dishes. Okay? That's on average. But if you ask them, if you ask them how much time a week, yeah, that doesn't seem like much, right? Because if you ask them how much time a week you spend doing dishes, the average American woman will say she spends five and a half hours a week doing dishes, and the average American man will say he spends two hours and 40 minutes a week doing dishes. So it's not that we're really doing dishes all the time, it just feels like we're doing dishes all of the time. And if it's not dishes, it is the other monotonous things of life. It is, it is, you know, laundry. Some of you guys, that's the thing that just seems to never end. The piles and the piles of the laundry and the folding. For some of you who have newborns, it is, it is man, this kid, I'm spending most of my day changing diapers. And I just feed this kid so that I can change diapers again. 
And for some of you, it's the, it's the morning commute. It's the morning commute, and you say, what am I doing wasting my life, spending my time on OC Transpo that doesn't really ever come on time? So it might not actually be the commuting. It's actually standing outside in the freezing cold waiting for OC Transpo to come. And for some of you, it's, it's your work. It's your job, sitting at your desk, doing the daily grind, pressing that button, working on that spreadsheet. And you say, what's the point? And for some of you, it's just the daily grind of scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and surfing and surfing and scrolling and scrolling. You're looking for something. How many times have you woke up with amazing plans of what you need to do today? And then when you go to bed at night, you're saying, what did I do today? So whenever I'm Whenever I'm uh, brainstorming, like I, I knew I was going to be done with our Genesis series a while ago. So I started praying and started brainstorming, you know, what am I going to, what, what are we going to go through as a, as a community next as we, as, we, as we do, you know, as we study the scripture together. And what I do is I, I think back and reflect back on conversations I've had with you guys. And I start like brainstorming and start praying about and start writing things down. And some of the things that came to mind as I was writing things down were some of the topics that we've been talking about are things like how do I deal with the monotony of life? How do I find my purpose? Or I struggle with anxiety or a feeling that I'm missing out. There's something more to life that I'm missing out on. Or, or what's the point of God putting me in this dead-end job or how do I redeem these moments of my life and live for something greater? Or what do I do about these doubts and hard questions that creep in at night? And as I've been talking to you and praying and hearing that, I start writing a list of potential and possible topics of sermon series ideas. And what generally happens as I do that process and pray through it and, and consider what we've been talking about is all of a sudden what will happen is, I don't know if it's a Holy Spirit or a splash of insight or what, but sometimes a book of the Bible will bubble up to the surface. And so I had written all those, brainstormed all those kind of topics and ideas down, and then it just hit me one day, Ecclesiastes talks about this stuff. Ecclesiastes teaches us to deal with the dishiness of life. And today we're going to look at that a little bit as we look at these first, first couple verses in Ecclesiastes. And, and today basically this is a hard sermon because I'm not going to give you the answers. We're only doing the first 11 verses. We're raising the questions today. That's what today's about, raising the questions. And so just look with me at the first couple verses here. Uh, there we go. Just at the first couple verses here, Ecclesiastes 1.1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanities. What does a man gain by all the toil, the dishes, <laughs> at which he toils under the sun? Well, I'm not going to talk today much about uh, verse 1. Verse 1, uh, this idea of the, the, the teacher, the king in Jerusalem. We're going to look at that a little bit next week because he really gets into his story uh, in next week. But I do want to focus uh, on, these, on these first words, and I want, to, I want to look at this word, this, 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 this first couple words, but I want to look at it, in, I want to give you the Hebrew, because I think that will help us a little bit to understand what's going on in this book. So I'm going to, I'm going to actually teach you a Hebrew word that we're going to be looking at, because 
Uh, I want to get this down first. So, so can you say it with me? Habal habalim. Can you say it? Habal habalim. Habal habalim. Everything is habal. Uh, that, that's this Hebrew word habal. And, and, and it's a key word in the book of Ecclesiastes. The word habal in Ecclesiastes appears 37 times in the 12 chapters of this book. So this, this is the key word of Ecclesiastes. Habal habalim. Habal habalim. Everything is habal. And so, and so is habal? Well, a lot of English translations will give you some of, the, and, and these are some of the famous, this is what Ecclesiastes is famous for. And particularly in our culture, the NIV is the best-selling translation of the Bible in, uh, in North America. And so the NIV translates, Habal Habalim, it uses, it, it translates it this way, meaningless. So how many of you are, are familiar with that translation? And if you think of Ecclesiastes, that's the first thing you think of. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. How many of you have heard that? And you think of, oh, Ecclesiastes, this is going to be fun. Right? This is going to be fun. We get, we get 14 weeks of everything is meaningless. And that's the NIV. Other English translations use other words, like um, the King James famously uses the word vanity. Vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. The King James Version, I think the New American Standard Version used that. Um, the ESV and the Holman Standard Version use futility of futility. Everything is futile. Nonsense. One of the, the more modern English paraphrases uses this word. Nonsense. Everything is nonsense. You get useless. Everything in life is useless. And you get, here's one of my favorites, pointless. It's all pointless. And I want to suggest to you, what, what is Habel? Doesn't it mean these things? Well, well, it could. It could mean these things. And there may be times in the book of Ecclesiastes where he's using the word habel to speak about these things. But I want to actually, before we get into that, um, I want to actually to, to, to approach the word habel, this key word, in a different way. So, so Hebrew is different than English. Okay, You understand different languages use words differently and use expressions differently. Hebrew uses concrete language, concrete nouns, to express abstract ideas. In English, we use a lot of abstract words to discuss abstract ideas. What Hebrew did was it would take a concrete noun to, to express something that's more abstract. Chinese does this. Chinese does this as well. So one of my favorite Chinese expressions, and probably one of the only idioms that I ever learned, one of my favorite Chinese expressions is green tree bamboo horse. How many of you guys know that one? Green tree bamboo horse. Four concrete words, right? Very vivid pictures. Green tree bamboo horse. Ching mei ju ma. I don't know what the tones are anymore. Right? How many of you guys know ching mei ju ma? Green. All right, there you go. Ling, you're here. So green tree bamboo horse. What does green tree bamboo horse mean? Well, green tree bamboo horse means this. It's a very concrete phrase, but it means... To fall in love with your childhood friend. Right? How do you get to fall in love with your childhood friend from green tree, bamboo, horse? Well, it's the idea that these concrete words give an expression. They, give a, they, 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 they connote something. So green tree means like in, in the growing of the tenderness of youth when the trees were all green. And bamboo horse is like when you jumped around on sticks and pretended they were horses. 
So it's, it's from the time you played as an infant with that person, now you've fallen in love. Green tree, bamboo horse. So, so the point is, Hebrew is like that. Hebrew will use concrete nouns to describe abstract idea. And this word habel is a concrete noun. The word habel literally is the word breath. It's the word breath. So, so in Canada, we have a really good illustration of what this word habel is. In fact, you could do it today. Go outside after the service, not right now, but after the service, go outside and you will see habel. All you need to do in Canada to see habel is walk outside and go like this. <sighs> right? And what do you see? That, that, you, that which you see, that is habel. That, that is the breath that, that he's talking about. That's Habel. So, so actually, the, the English translation that I think does, you know, is actually most literal. This is going to surprise you. The English translation that's actually most literal is uh, Eugene Peterson's The Message, which, which, is, which is interesting. It's the only English translation that just takes this for what it is, and he translates, uh, he, trans, or he paraphrases, actually, I, I would say this is a translation. He translates uh, verse 2 as smoke, nothing but smoke. There's nothing to anything. It's all smoke. Or this is how I translated it for you in, in the book that I passed out. A mere breath, says the preacher. A mere breath. It's nothing but a breath. So that's our life. We start out this book. Go outside after service. That's what the teacher is going to be. Te That's the beginning of his sermon. It's all just a breath. Now there's, I, I want to just take it to mean breath right now because I think if we just take, if we start there, it helps us from coming into the book of Ecclesiastes and either being overly uh, pessimistic or overly optimistic as we approach and get into this book. And let me explain what I mean. Some of, some of you guys have been trained already to when you, when you think about the, the book of Ecclesiastes to think overly pessimistic. And so like, because so like, you know, you've read the NIV or you've heard it somewhere that the book of Ecclesiastes is about how life is meaningless, right? And so you've, you've heard this meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And so you've already trained yourself to go into this book thinking this is going to be the conclusion. And, and if it is, Actually, if it is, that means the book could end here. Because if everything is meaningless, well, anything that this guy's going to say to us is also meaningless. If everything is meaningless, if everything under the sun is meaningless, what's he going to teach us? And some people take the book that way. And they say that the, the, almost like the, the quester, the, the teacher here, is so negative and so pessimistic about life that almost... Uh, there has to be another guy at the end that comes in in the last couple of verses and says, all right, forget all, almost forget about everything you just heard. Here's the real conclusion of the matter. Fear God. And it's almost like we take Ecclesiastes very, very, very negatively. Uh, there's a philosopher, Peter Kreeft, who takes the book of Ecclesiastes this way. And, and he has some things good to say in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, but what he basically, his approach is, Ecclesiastes is the book that asks the questions that the rest of the Bible, we need the rest of the Bible to answer, is the way he takes it. So he sees the book of Ecclesiastes very cynically, very negatively. And I don't 
as we see as we go through, I don't think that does justice to, to where this Word of God here is going to take us. And, and, I, and, and so what I, I think just taking this right now as breath will help us to be open to what's going to be said the rest of the book. If we just take it as meaningless from verse 2, we're going to have trouble actually hearing <laughs> and being optimistic about what's to come. But also taking uh, this, just for right now, taking it as breath, I think will help us against any overly optimistic views of the book. See, the way that Ecclesiastes is sometimes also presented to us, it's presented to us almost overly optimistic. And, and, and this is the apologetic approach to Ecclesiastes. And so what, what I mean by that is some people read the book of Ecclesiastes as if for the unbeliever, for the unbeliever, for those who don't know God, Life is habel. For the unbeliever and those who don't know God, life is meaningless. But when we come to Jesus Christ, we get the abundant life, right? Like when we come to Jesus Christ, life's no longer habel. Life is, life is now positive and meaningful. Well, here's the problem with that. The problem is he begins his book saying, breath, breath, life is all a breath. In verse 2, but he actually ends the book by concluding as well, a breath, a breath, life is just a breath. It doesn't change. Whatever Habel is, whatever the breath is, it doesn't change. For an unbeliever, life is Habel, and for a believer, life is Habel. And I, and I, and I think as you go through the book, you're going to see that. This Habelness of life doesn't change because we become a Christian. Life isn't any less a breath for us who are believers. We will see that there's a change in perspective. Right? We will see that there's a change in perspective. But I want to warn you from the beginning, as we go through this book, it's not like suddenly you're going to get to the point where you're like, ah, oh, life is no longer a breath for me. No. It's Habel. For, Ecclesiastes is about the inescapable Habelneth, the breathness of life. And so I don't want to overinterpret this word, but I do want to give us some suggestions that may help us as we go forward. What, do you, what, are, what are the primary qualities of this breath? Go outside. What's the primary qualities of this breath? The first primary quality of this breath is that it's fleeting. It passes quickly. When you go outside, you go, it lasts for what? Three, four seconds? Not even that. And this is the way the word habel is used in Scripture. For example, in, uh, in Psalm 78, uh, 33, it's speaking of God. He says, He made their ways vanish like a breath. Right? And that's the same word, habel. He makes their ways vanish like a breath. So it's, it's God speaking of humanity that their life is, vanishes like that. Uh, in Psalm 144, verse 4, we get this, man is like a breath, chabel. It's the same word, but then he describes to say what he means by that. Man is like a breath, his days are like a passing shadow. And, and that, so that's the first and most obvious quality of breath is that it, it passes like that. And that's why I'm saying it's the same for a Christian and a non-Christian. It's the same for somebody who's following God and, and believing in God and somebody who's not. It doesn't matter. The same fate awaits us all. 
Our days are short. And life is a breath. And the amazing thing about life being a breath is that could mean, it could mean, it could mean, if life is a breath, it could in fact mean that life is meaningless. Right? It could in fact mean life is short and then you die. But it could also mean life is short and therefore it's very, very, very meaningful. It could mean we only have a few days walking on this earth and therefore every day matters. We're going to look at, there's, there's both approaches in this book. <laughs> Solomon, the teacher, is going to describe both of those possibilities. But we don't want to jump to those conclusions before we actually hear what he's got to say. A, a, a second somewhat obvious quality of breath is that go outside, try this. <laughs> go outside today, do that, and then try to hold on to it. All right? What happens? It's gone. It passes through your fingers. There's a there's an intangible, oh, sorry. I, I, a second kind of obvious quality of breath is that it's intangible or it's elusive. The, Solomon, in this book, he uses this really unique phrase, and I, and I think it's really interesting. He uses the phrase, I think it's seven times, and then a phrase like it another two times. So nine times he uses this phrase, chasing after the wind. Right? And then run after it and try to grab onto it. And you're not going to be able to do it. In fact, the Hebrew comes from the root, uh, the root shepherding the wind, and which is a really vivid picture again, a really concrete picture. Like, what does a shepherd try to do? A shepherd tries to corral, right, his flock. And, and it's like that. Life is this breath that can be unshepherded. Like, it's intangible. The moment you try to pin it down, it slips through your fingers, and, and, and we're going to see as we go through this book that this is also possibly a, a way that he's using this word breath. The moment we try to figure life out, the moment we think we have life figured out, it slips through our fingers. The moment we think we have God figured out, the moment we think we got, we got this life pinned down, suddenly we're confronted by injustice or we're confronted by suffering or we're confronted by the monotony of life. And just when we thought we had it within our grasp, we lose it. And if that's not a great description of what life is, I don't know what is. And, and, and so this is this idea of, of how do you hold on to, what can you gain from life? And, and that leads us to verse 3, which is the key question of the book. What, what can be gained what does man gain from all the toil with which he toils under the sun? See, if, if I read this negatively from the beginning, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, I almost came to verse 3 and read this like a rhetorical question. Meaningless, meaningless, it's all meaningless, whatever. What can be gained from all that man toils under the sun? But, but I think this is actually a sincere question that we're going to be looking at as we go through the book. It's a breath. Your life is intangible and fleeting. And so what good is all your labor and strife? What, what can you actually gain from it? The, the Hebrew word is yitron, which is unique to Ecclesiastes. And it means what, what can be harvested. 
And if you think about that, it's an amazing question, right? Go outside, breathe into the air, and then see what you can get from that. And if that's what life is, if life is all just that breath, what actually are we striving for? What are we doing here? What are we working so hard for if everything will soon fade away no matter what we do? And that's the question we're going to be looking at. And that's the question that I think creeps into our lives as we're sitting there every day doing these dishes. As we're sitting on the commute, as you're changing those diapers, as you're pressing that button at work, what is all this for? That's the question we'll be looking at. It's an important question. And to feel the weight of this question, Solomon does this through poetry. There's a couple ways to come about expressing truth. Like theologians and pastors generally, what we generally do is we we use propositional truth. We, We want to communicate ideas. And we want to communicate arguments. And Solomon is a master at doing that. He's going, to, he's going to give us an unpack an argument as we go through the book. But you know what? There's another way, and that's art. It's poetry. It's songwriting. And Solomon does that as well. And so he, he writes a poem. And the, 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 way, the reason why we articulate things through poetry is sometimes that connects more to our heart, at least initially, and makes us then think. It's one, one of the things I did in that booklet I gave you is I made a playlist of, of songs, of music. Because as I've been meditating on this book, I realized that Ecclesiastes is so influential and so much music. And I put a song list together of songs that were directly influenced by the book of Ecclesiastes. And I've been listening to those songs over the last month. And so I shared that with you guys. Because you can be home, you can be listening to any of these songs on your commute, and it can get you to meditate and reflect on what he's saying. Um, Ravi Zacharias, the great apologist, talked about doing theology and philosophy on three different levels. He says the first, the first and highest level is like the level of the academic who writes papers and journal art- articles and argues and wrestles with ideas. He says the second level is the level of, of the poet. And the third level is the level of the dinner table. And he says often when we find that there's a crisis in our culture, it's the artists who feel the crisis First. And you can actually go and you can take any top 40 songs and listen to it for what, what are the messages of this book. And a lot of what you're going to hear on the radio, it's not, a, it's not an intellectual argument, but it's an emotional recognition that something is not right in this world. So some of the artists I put on that playlist are, are Christian artists, some of them are not. Because some of the artists, they, they feel this habelness of life more even profoundly than the people that just write and read the books you know, the university professors. And so Solomon writes this poem, and and I want you to hear this poem that he begins with uh, in these books, or it begins his book with. And here's the poem. This is the habelness of life. A generation goes, and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and it goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. He he writes this poem about the, I'm going to say this, about the dishiness of life. 
Your life, this breath that we live in, is consumed by an unceasing monotony of the cyclical nature of life. And what he says in this poem is basically nature is set up like this. Nature is set up like this. this the sea never gets full. The wind never stops blowing. Right? The, the water cycle never finishes. Right? And, and here's the thing. For nature, nature doesn't care. The, the sea doesn't get frustrated because it's never full. Right? The wind never gets tired. But in the second part of the poem, he talks about this is not a problem for nature, it's a problem for us. He says, because we observe nature, we observe this unending monotony of life, and to us it bothers us. So he, he goes on in the poem, he says, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. We, we, we never have enough of what we are consuming. The sea doesn't mind that it's never full, but my eye minds. I always want to know what's going on. The ear is not satisfied for hearing. He goes on, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. And here's the irony of it. Even though I'm never satisfied with seeing or knowing or hearing or speaking, it's all wearisome, I'm always looking for something new, and yet there is nothing truly innovative or new. Is there a thing of which it said, see, this, is this new? It's already been done in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things yet, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. See, the problem isn't in us. There's two problems. Basically, I didn't know exactly how to express this to you guys, but there's, there's basically two problems we're wrestling with in these first 11 verses. One problem is the breathiness of life. Is like life is over like that. Another problem is the dishiness of life. That this breath of life that's over like that, we use it, we consume it doing monotonous things that don't seem to matter. And after we are gone, no one will remember us. In a hundred years, nobody will care that I spent 42 minutes a week doing dishes. 50 some hours a year. And it, and it frustrates us. And it, and it particularly frustrates us as, and I'll explain this to you, it particularly frustrates us, I believe, as Christians living in Western culture. And I'll explain what I mean by that. There, there's basically historically been two, and I'm speaking in very general terms, two views of life. The two views of life. You have... The cyclical view of life, we'll call it the dish view because it's nice and round. The cyclical view of life and the linear view of life. Generally speaking, ancient worldviews and Eastern religions today assume a cyclical view of life. See, what they do is they observe, they observe the sun rising and setting every day. They observe the seasons, winter, spring, summer, and fall, harvest and reaping. They observe those things. They said, well, this, nothing really changes. We, we get up every day and we do the same thing. We, we, every year, a new year comes and we do the same thing. We make those New Year's resolutions and guess what? Next year, we're going to make the same New Year's resolutions. 
We, 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 we plant and we sow, and most of these cultures are historically were agricultural, tied to the agricultural timelines. And so they'd say, this is actually what life is. There's never any true progress. We, we continue just to slave and be slave too. And they began to, they actually even were worshiping the sun. Because the sun never stops. It just keeps on going around and around again. And they're saying that is the circle of life. Disney, right? Simba, the Lion King. That's the circle of life. And some have said that one of the most influential sentences in all of history is Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. Because in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, Moses, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says there is another reality that is happening simultaneously to this circle of life. And the other reality is that life has a linear progression. And he, and he said it this way, Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. So suddenly, the universe is not just always was and always will be in the cycle of life. Moses comes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit and begins this revolution of worldview in which we see life as having a beginning and leading to something. And that would be the linear view. The, it's, and in fact, it's, it, it leads to the progressive view of history. That life is leading towards something. And that is what we've been looking at. Most of the Bible is proclaiming this linear view of history. This is what we were doing when we were going through the book of Genesis. We were following the story of redemption. And so in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, right? And what we do is we rejected, we rebelled against God in our sin and in a rebellion. We were... We were um, expelled from God's presence, but at that moment when we were expelled from God's presence and under God's wrath, God gave a promise of deliverance. A deliverer, a savior, a Messiah would come, and that's what we've been doing over this last number of months going through the book of Genesis. We've been looking at how this promise of redemption unfolds through the scriptures. That he would be a son of Eve, he would be a son of Abraham, he'd be son of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Judah. How he would come and be the king promised to bring blessing to the earth. And that's just what we celebrated over Christmas, that, that he came. right? He came and he has come in his first advent to, to lay himself down, to absorb the wrath of God upon human sin. And, and so that he would raise from the dead offering forgiveness of sins to all who believe in him. He commissioned us, his church, to go into the world and to actually proclaim the kingdom of God until he returns, at which time he will come to establish his kingdom in righteous justice and peace. Justice and peace. And so most of the scripture is, is dedicated to explaining and expanding that linear story of redemption. And that is where we as Christians... And as Christianity has influenced Western culture, that is where we assume a linear view of history. That, that history is leading toward, or is leading somewhere. Okay? And, and, and so like some of you guys just went to Urbana, right? Or back from Urbana. Missions conference. In Urbana, in missions conference, things like that, and often within churches, we give this message. Your life is part of God's plan. And part of God's plans is to use you to reach the nations until he returns. 
And so you get so pumped up, we get so excited about where do I fit in the unfolding plan of God? How is God, as a Christian, how is God going to use me in his unfolding plan? And then what happens is we go to our job or we start doing dishes and we get smacked in the face with this cyclical, frustrating monotony of life and we say, what is this all about? I, I thought, God had set me as part of the church to be a world changer. And now here I am stuck in all my life just slaving away doing these dishes. And there's a unique form of doubt that creeps in. There's a lot of different doubts that Christians can have. When you're young, you might have a doubt which is like, I don't know if any of the things in the Bible are true. That could be your unique form of doubt. That's a, that's, a, that's a common form of doubt. When you're older or young adult, you're like, I, I don't know if did Jesus really rise from the dead. You're consumed with questions possibly like that. Or is the, Christian, is the Christian faith really good? You might be consumed with doubts like that. But when you're getting older, as I'm getting older, there's a different type of doubt. The different type of doubt is what is, how do I deal with this? Like, does God really have a purpose? God, is my life really, is, is this really leading towards something? In, in 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, in the last time, scoffers are going to come scoffing, saying, where's the promise of his coming? Everything continues to go on as it did from creation. And that scoffers will play upon that unique doubt that, God, are you really, it's been thousands of years and although the church is marching forward triumphantly, a lot of the time we're just doing dishes and waiting for buses. And it's that sort of doubt that Ecclesiastes speaks to. How do we deal with the cyclical nature of life? What's the point of it all in this breath that we waste a lot of, it seems, doing these monotonous realities? Ecclesiastes is going to speak to them. And These first 11 verses raise the problem, but I'm not going to necessarily answer it today because we, we're going to be working through this series. Um, and I don't want to give you all the answers. This is one of the things I'm wrestling with right now is how do I do this without just giving it all to you? And so uh, in your booklet, I actually have some resources in the back. I've got some really good books and resources there. If, you, if you're a Kindle reader, you know, you could read through, <laughs> download one on your Kindle, order one from the bookstore or Amazon. But here's one thing I would suggest to you. Just start reading Ecclesiastes over and over again. You try on your own, excuse me, on your own to follow along with Solomon's argument. Meditate on it. Reflect on it. Go home and take it. And, and you wrestle with it. Not just me wrestling. I don't do all the wrestling with Scripture for all hundred of you. You take it home. You really wrestle with it. As you're doing dishes, you reflect on what is the point and the purpose of this, of this life that God has given us. Can anything be gained from all the toil and all the toil with we toil under the sun? But I want to leave you at least with something today. I'm going to leave you a list. We're not going to give you the answer, go into Solomon's answer, but I want to give you something that Paul talks about in the New Testament. This is one of the few places in the New Testament which may contain an allusion to the book of Ecclesiastes. In Romans chapter 8, verse 18, the Apostle Paul writes, 
I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And here's the possible allusion to the book of creation, uh, book of Ecclesiastes. He says, for the creation was subjected to futility. That Greek word that we get futility from in this verse is the Greek word that in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures is this word being used again and again and again in Ecclesiastes. So, so just let's substitute that. For creation was subjected to chabel. Creation was subjected to the breath. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the spirits, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience." I want to give you three things that Paul would say about this habel, this breath. The first thing is, there's a reason and a purpose for this habel. That the habel, the breath has purpose, for God has subjected creation to it. Verse 20, the creation was subjected to Habel, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. The, that, this idea that the Habelness, the breath quality that we experienced living in this world was actually by God's design and with God's intent. So even if the author of Hebrews, uh, Ecclesiastes story is saying meaningless, meaningless, it's all meaningless, it's all breathiness, it's all vanity, it's all futile, it's actually not futile that it is like that. God has deemed, he has subjected it with his intent that life would have these qualities, at least during this time that we're living. God is purposeful and in, in strategic in why when you go through your life, it is like walking outside going, and it's gone. The habelness itself is not meaningless. There's a purpose to this perplexing breath. And, and the purpose may be this, that the habel points us to a glory beyond the scope of our life. Verse 19 tells us that creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of sons of God. And verse 23 says, and not only creation, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we await eagerly for adoptions of sons, the redemption of our body. The habelness, the breath quality of this life is in fact what makes us long for another. He says, he uses this phrase under the sun a lot in the book of Ecclesiastes. It could be that he's speaking philosophically anything under, you know, under not seeing God's hand at work in, but he may just be speaking of the scope of our life, and it doesn't really matter. What he's saying is, within the scope of our life, everything is chabel. Well, if we're longing for something that satisfies, something that lasts, it cannot be found in this life. C.S. Lewis said it like this. He said, if I find in myself desires 
which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. If you are a person who finds yourself frustrated with the habelness of life, with I can't pin it down and it's going so short and I woke up one day and my kid was going to college. It just seemed like yesterday I was holding her in my arms and you don't know what to do with life. It may in fact be that God is using the habelness of life to, to, to prompt you and to prod you into seeking that which lasts outside of this scope of life. And again, it's not only true for you if you don't know Christ, although if you're here today and you don't know Christ, I will tell you, my prayer is that you will find dissatisfaction in anything else and that you will find rest and meaning in Christ. But I want to tell you, church, this Ecclesiastes is not just for them outside the walls. For us, it may even be more profoundly frustrating He says, we groan inwardly. And he says, we who have the Spirit of God groan inwardly. And the reason why we groan inwardly in this habel is because as, as the Spirit of God lives in us, we who believe in Christ, we know that there's something more. Like, we know that there is a God who transcends this life. We know that there's a purpose and a plan that, re- that history is going toward. And that's why it's even more frustrating to us when we experience the breath of life. This is why we cry out and we pray at at every service, Thy kingdom come. And so let me encourage you from the beginning, if you are frustrated with the habelness of life, if you're frustrated with life itself, that doesn't make you a bad Christian. It makes you a Christian. (laughs) Like, I know some of you guys, you're frustrated so much with your sin. You're frustrated so much with your flesh. You're frustrated so much with your work. You're frustrated so much with the dishes that you do every day. You're frustrated so much with the, the pointlessness of life. And let me tell you, that frustration does not make you a, an inferior Christian. It's what makes you a human being. And, and, and Solomon is saying, let's look at that stuff. And let's begin to see it in a different way. Because that would be the third thing that that even Paul is speaking about here. That the gospel provides us a new perspective on the habelness of life. And this is where Paul's conviction, his faith springs forward. And I love this Lord. He says, I am convinced. I'm convinced that the sufferings of this present world, this habel life under the sun, are not worth comparing to the glory of God. That will be revealed in us. Not worth comparing. Paul speaks in this passage, he speaks of hope. The hope. The trust in the gospel. As Paul says in another place, I know whom I have believed in. I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed to him until that day. I know Christ, my Savior. I know that there's something beyond the sun, something that lasts. And that's what he was putting his hope in. And he says, I can't see it. I can't can't find it in this breath. But if I could see it, it wouldn't be hope. So Paul speaks of hope here. The book of Ecclesiastes, as we go through it, I want to tell you, I'll give you a little bit of a spoiler, not much. 
The book of Ecclesiastes is going to speak of beauty. The book of Ecclesiastes is going to speak of contentment. And the book of Ecclesiastes is going to speak of joy. And to be honest, well, this is one of the reasons why I'm so excited to go through this with you guys. I don't know of any other book ever written that is so life-affirming, contentment-inducing, and joy-producing as this book. And sometimes in order to see that, we actually have to look realistically at the breathiness and at the dishiness of life. If you're here today, you're not yet a Christian. I mean, that, that would be my plea that you would see and sense in your frustration with life, that you would turn to Christ and you would find something that lasts in Him. If you're a Christian and you struggle with the monotony or you struggle with the intangibility or you struggle with the brevity of life, man, I, I, I'm so excited for you because I'm so excited to go through this book and hear you know, what the Word of God is going to have to teach us in this. Heavenly Father, we pray as we, uh, as we approach your word, teach us, lead us, guide us, and guard us. Lord, I, I pray for those here today who are frustrated with life, who are anxious about their life, who are worried about their life, who, who, who have this angst that there's something more, but it's intangible. They can't put their finger on it. Lord, I pray that you would use the habelness of life to drive us to you and to rest in you. I pray for those here today who do not know you as their Lord and their Savior, that they would come to you, that you would use the terror, it is terror, of staring into the void of our lives, wondering what is the point of it all. I pray that you would use that in their life, that as uh, as as the famous theologian said, that their hearts would be restless until they find their rest in you. Lord, make our hearts restless until we find our rest in you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. We serve a good God, a good, good God, and, and we're going we're to worship him. This is part of what brings beauty and joy to life is worshiping God for who he is and what he has done in Jesus Christ. So sing with us. We're going to go into a time of praise and worship, bringing a sacrifice of praise to our God. Sing out with us and, and encourage each other as you sing not only to him, but sing to one another, admonishing one another with the words of the songs that you'll be singing. And as we do this, I'm going to be passing around the elements of the Lord's Supper. It's a reminder each week that we do to, to, re, to focus on the eternal things, eternal work that God has accomplished through Jesus Christ. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin, that we might receive forgiveness of our sins in him. Not by what we have done, but by what he has done for us. You know Christ. If you've professed him publicly by your baptism, please just take a cracker and a cup and we'll celebrate together at the end of the service. If you don't know Christ yet, publicly through baptism, just help us by passing the tray and we'll celebrate together uh, after we sing together. Thanks.